Nice to see you all. Really nice. Howdy. <coughs> Howdy from London. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, last week, for those who are here, Matthew encouraged us with the wonderful message that we're all to be martyrs. And <laughs> I, <coughs> I, I thought, you know, what could be more, uh, what could be a better follow-on, what could be more terrifying than becoming a martyr than uh, the call to become an evangelist, which is, our <laughs> which is what we're going to be talking about this morning. So, yeah, I have to admit, personally, I'd rather be a martyr than an evangelist, <laughs> even though that doesn't really um, compute. Uh, I'm sure probably many of us have a bit of an allergic reaction to that word and that concept of evangelism. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit scary. Yet this morning's passage, we're going to be exploring this theme. Uh, Yes, and it's a good thing. A good thing about expository preaching I was thinking about is that you can't avoid the topics you don't want to talk about. So they come to you. So I got this one. Um, <coughs> I don't have slides, but we're going to be just going through the chapter. So if you have a Bible, it might be a good one to flick through. Pope Francis wrote an encyclical to the church, um, exhorting the church to remain committed to evangelism. And he writes, Before all else... The gospel invites us to respond to the God of love who saves us, to see God in others, and to go forth from ourselves to seek the God of so, sorry to seek the good of others, which could be a nice definition of evangelism. On paper, at least, it sounds good. Um, to be to respond to the God of love who saves us, to see God in others, and to go forth from ourselves to seek the good of the people around us. Um, and yet, maybe that's still not enough to quell the, the, the panic people are feeling right now about the <laughs> idea of evangelism. Um, anyway, hopefully this morning's sermon will be healing in some kind of way. So the character we focused on, or Matthew fo focused on last week, was Stephen. And today we're looking at another one of the seven deacons, whose name is Philip. Going back uh, a few chapters... Uh, Stephen and Philip were, yeah, like I said, these seven men, uh, these seven deacons who were elected by the apostles to look after the, the um, Greek-speaking widows in the Jerusalem church. And it's always interesting, it seems that um, even right there in the, in the very beginnings of the Bible, there's an issue of, of racism. Basically, there's an issue of, of uh, these Greek-speaking Hellenistic um, widows being overlooked by the by the church because they were it was in a very Hebrew context and to be Greek in that context was to be a bit like hold your nose kind of walk past a Greek person so um, the church suffered with the same stuff that it still suffers with anyway so the seven deacons were according to Luke well respected and full of the spirit and wisdom though the the seven deacons were also all Hellenistic men so they were all Greek uh, Greek by orientation in terms of culture, Greek by orientation in terms of language, but Jewish in the sense of ethnicity, if that makes sense. It was a bit confusing with Judaism because Jewishness is ethnic and religious. It's, so anyway, um, they, were, they were Jews by ethnicity and Greeks by culture. So they were responsible for looking after the um, Greek-speaking Hebrews. And uh, as we heard last week, Stephen was a bit of a remarkable character, really. He, he was 
pretty fearless in the face of intense opposition. He held his ground uh, in this accusation against him of, of blaspheming the temple. And he gave witness to Jesus, that word witness being the word martyr, and uh, was, was murdered by the Jewish temple elite for not backing down, including a character called Saul, who we will no doubt meet as we work our way through the book of Acts. So Saul is standing, giving approval to the, to the killing of Stephen. And that's where the chapter starts, chapter 8. So I'm going to be going through the whole chapter today and just going to go sort of paragraph by paragraph and stop and add a few thoughts along the way. So we'll get there. And um, yeah. And maybe have some insights for us as a church, hopefully. So yes, like I said, if you have a Bible, good to read along in Acts chapter 8. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which means you can read the same one I've got. So it says, uh, there arose on that day, so that's the day that Stephen was, was murdered. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the, the apostles. So Luke seems to be suggesting that uh, the people who were scattered were probably the, um, the Hellenistic Jews. So the apostles stuck around. Whereas the great persecution probably was sort of targeted at those Roman-looking, Roman-sounding people who were following Jesus. Uh, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul was pretty ruthless. He didn't, he didn't care if you're a male or a female. He was, he was after you. He was knocking down doors. Um, pretty scary time I can only imagine probably would have felt a little bit like I don't know the sort of purges in World War Two and that sort of thing so those it says now those who were scattered so these are the probably the Greek speaking um, Christians were, went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Persecution leads to the first great scattering of the first great kind of missionary activity of the church. Um, as a plan to, to destroy the church, it really backfired quite badly. So instead of, um, what really happened was by dislocating this messianic community that had gathered around the temple and had gathered around the apostles, um, the, the followers of Jesus began to spread all over the place. They began to fan out into, into places where the people were open, I guess, to this idea that, that um, you can be part of Yahweh's kingdom without being um, a Jew by a Jew by birth or, or a Hebrew in terms of culture. In a sense, it was saying that the traditions and the religion of, of Israel was being de-regionalized. Yeah. It had been located exclusively in Jerusalem, and the scattering sort of led to Judaism exploding out into a, a totally new way. So Jesus, I think, um, not the orchestrator of persecution, but certainly using this, this opportunity to, to nudge his little babies out of the nest 
and watch them fly. Um, watch them go to where he's always wanted them to go. So it's it's also interesting, I think, at, that at the focus of this point of the characters is on these really ordinary, nameless believers. Like we, we know Philip, but we don't know the rest, um, who are now going about preaching the word wherever they go. So they're not pointing people back to Jerusalem. They're not trying to bring the um, bring people back to the apostles. They've really taken the message on the road. Uh, and Philip goes to Samaria. So, if you if you know your Old Testament, there's a bit of Bible trivia here. Um, you'll recall the story of Solomon's kingdom, and when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over, and Rehoboam is not such a wise leader. It leads to the splitting of the kingdom. So, ten tribes go to the north, and two the two tribes remain in the south. And the Bible presents it really as the beginning of the end for Israel, the splitting of the kingdom. This, um, yeah, and and uh, <coughs> one of the first things that Jeroboam, the guy who takes the ten northern tribes away up to the north, does is he establishes this new kind of cult, um, which uh, is a hybrid version of of Judaism, to ensure that the people don't end up keep going back to Jerusalem. So, so this is the start, really, of this deep hatred and mistrust in, in the life of Israel thousand years before the events we're talking about. Um, it just shows that, that the, the animosity between Samaritans and Jews runs really, really deep. So, yeah, the northern kingdom, after the split, managed to hold itself together for about 200 years before it got swept away by the Assyrian Empire um, and the Assyrians had a really clever tactic in that they would they would exile people from the land and then they would take people that they'd exiled from other parts of the land and repopulate them in, into that area. So what they did is they resettled the northern area where the northern kingdoms were with a whole lot of foreigners and uh, just a way of confusing and dislocating people. So that was, that was uh, the northern kingdom. They became the Samaritans. They built uh, their own temple and they kind of, practiced an imitation version of Judaism. They had a temple on Mount Gerizim and um, some devout Jews around the, uh, when was it, the second century BC came and destroyed that temple. So the Jews and the Samaritans had a lot of beef and they really didn't like each other and they had a lot of reasons not to like each other. And that's what makes Philip's evangelistic expedition, I think, so remarkable and so redemptive. Because it's set within that context, um, this really tense context. And Luke only really gives us this one verse. He says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and pro proclaimed to them the Christ. But it doesn't really explain why. It doesn't explain why he went to Samaria. It doesn't, it doesn't say that he always wanted to go to Samaria or he felt bad for the Samaritans. It just says he went. Um, <coughs> whatever the case, Philip is confident. He's really confident that the Samaritans ought to be included in this thing that Jesus is doing. Perhaps he was recalling Jesus' promise that, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So maybe he was just going, oh, well, next stop Samaria, I suppose. Um, whatever the reason, I just love the way, uh, yeah, I love I loved the, the outcome, I guess, of Philip's decision to, to go to Samaria. It says there was much joy in that city. And I think that's a good benchmark, right? It's a good benchmark of what evangelism should be. It should bring joy. So let's read on to see why that's the case. But there was a man named Simon, 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the magician was impressed. Um, so, yeah, Simon, the one who amazed the people of Samaria, is now amazed in return by what Philip's doing. It's quite cool and captivated by Philip's message. In verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So let's just remember Peter and John. These are Hebraic Jewish people, so they have a natural dislike for Samaritans. It's one thing for Philip to go around cavorting with Samaritans. You know, maybe we can let that slide because he's a bit Greek and a bit weird, but Peter and John are like these pure, purebred Jews, you know, going to this place. Um, <coughs> and not only that, they are the ones who, if you recall in Luke, in Luke's gospel, so Luke wrote Acts and he wrote the book of Luke as well, they were the ones who, when Jesus was heading into Samaria and the Samaritans uh, didn't roll out the welcome mat, they said, should we call down fire from heaven and like, burn them? <laughs> and and Jesus, Jesus rebukes them for, for saying that. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that, that these are the same guys that were like, can we just burn them? Like, um, <laughs> J- Jesus rebukes them, obviously, for, for saying this. And a few chapters later, he actually, he actually tells one of the most famous stories, I think, in the world and puts a Samaritan at the right, right at the heart of it as the hero, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then again, a few chapters later, there's a story of Jesus healing 10 lepers and the, and they, uh, the lepers go away and one, one of the 10 the only one of the ten that comes back is a Samaritan. So Luke and Jesus obviously have a preference or a sense of, um, of love, really, for, for Samaritans. Took, took the apostles a little bit longer. Um, <coughs> uh, yeah, they wanted to watch them burn. So this, this is what makes the story, I think, quite remarkable. The very same Peter and John are the ones that come back to Samaria to confirm, yes, it is indeed possible for a Samaritan to be saved. And maybe, <laughs> maybe God does have room for them in his community. Um, maybe, they, maybe they too, you know, those awful Samaritans can be followers of Jesus. So in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, for he the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this issue, but um, just to say Luke usually presents baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit as one thing, like one event. This is the only place in, uh, in, in Acts where people are baptized and then People come and then pray for a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, not a Pentecostal theology is built on this this part of Acts. Um, but, you know, whatever the reason, uh, it does, it's not actually very clear. Whatever the reason, the Samaritan experience is baptism by water, and then the apostles come and validate it, and there's a filling of the Holy Spirit. 
So the pillars of the Jerusalem church are demonstrating, yeah, that Samaritans are included in this remarkable new temple that Jesus is building with Jews and Samaritans. Um, if Peter holds the keys to the kingdom, as, as church tradition says, then he's sort of the one who unlocks the door. Like Philip's the one who starts the process, but, but Peter's the one who unlocks the door and says, welcome in. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I, on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in, I love this, the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. <laughs> and Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is the last, really, we hear of, of Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer or Simon the great, Simon Magnus. Um, but it isn't the last time that that we, you know, know that it's not the last time people try to use church positions for gain, you know, for, for influence, um, to wield power over others. Religious manipulation is the worst, I think, in the world, the worst kind of manipulation. So Simon recognizes it straight away and calls it out publicly. He condemns uh, this attempt to, so Peter calls him out, um, he, he condemns this attempt to buy prominence within the church. Um, and the irony is that Simon has already been baptized, if you like. He, you know, he's been traveling with Philip. He's amazed. He believes. He's baptized. So, um, <coughs> it, so, but, but perhaps his heart's not quite in it. He still wants to be Simon the Great. He still wants to be the man, you know, uh, the, the the man with the power. And it appears that he actually was quite a big deal. Um, he he possibly even remains so. There's a statue to Simon in Rome. There's um. The early church fathers write about Simon, um, Irenaeus and Tertullian write about this Simon the Samaritan and the kind of cult around him. So it was clearly like a big deal. Anyway, Philip's not impressed or not faced by Simon, and neither is Peter, um, neither is John. They just recognize him for what he is, which is a false messiah. So then it goes on in verse 25. Now, when they, Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So that's the first section of chapter 8. So to sort of sum it up, in the, it's giving us, if you like, there's sort of uh, three levels of um, narrative or, or three discourses going on here. I guess at the top level there's something really drastic is going on there's a thousand you know this thousand years of animosity is um all of a sudden running out of steam all of a sudden um jesus's words to the samaritan woman in john 4 have are being realized where he says you know a time is coming dear woman when you'll no longer worship the father on this mountain or that mountain but you'll worship him in spirit and truth so uh, so at that top level there's a big event going on with philip's ministry and at the middle level, middle level, I suppose, there's this, this is really a story about the expansion of the church into a new, a new mission field, um, which is a, which is helping drive the, the the narrative of the book of Acts along. 
And then at the bottom level, the, the fine grain level, I think this story offers us a picture of a particular kind of evangelism. And it's a it's a evangelism that's really centered just on proclaiming Christ. That's all that Philip does. Um, he proclaims Christ and the good news about the kingdom of God, demonstrating with God's power and God's presence. So in contrast to Stephen and Peter and um, even Paul, there's no great speeches recorded here. I don't know, maybe Philip was a man of few words. But he he was as effective as anyone else. He just simply told people all uh, all about who Jesus is and showed people what Jesus was doing. And the result was the cities transformed and overwhelmed with joy. When Liz um when Liz preached on Pentecost maybe a month or so ago she talked about um, this idea, I don't even know if it was the main part of the message, but it stuck out to me at least, this kind of challenge or about um, just using Jesus' name, just speaking Jesus' name wherever we go. Um, so just to let his name come up in conversation with strangers to let, and to let Jesus do the work of drawing people to him. And I, you know, I may be reading something into this, chapter um, and into this character of Philip, but something about the way Luke presents him makes me think he was that kind of person. He just did that. He just talked about Jesus wherever he went. He just let Jesus' name kind of ring out and let and let, let he let Jesus draw people into him. So if I could lay down a challenge for us, it's a challenge for me, it's a, is that we would be the kind of people that would just, um, would let Jesus' name be on our lips, you know, uh, on on our lips and in our minds, that we would be the kind of people who just let his name ring out in our conversation, not in a weird way, but just speak of him and speak of his story, speak of his character, and and he will do the drawing. He will do the, the drawing people into himself. So I'll come back to this in a moment, but there's one more story from this chapter which I think really, again, illustrates this point quite nicely. So picking up from verse 26, Luke writes, <coughs> Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Cadence, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He came to Jerusalem to worship which means that he, the eunuch, was a practicing Jew, even though he was ethnically Ethiopian. So, and uh, verse 28, and he was, as, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation where his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth 
and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astos, not sure where that is, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Kind of a weird ending, eh? Um, <coughs> but in contrast, I guess, to, to Philip's ministry experiences in Samaria, um, this one is, you know, maybe the Samaritan one was big and it was public and it was crowds and it was signs and wonders. This is just a conversation. Um, and it's a spirit-guided conversation. So first it says he's guided by an angel and then he's guided by the spirit himself to go and start this conversation with this Ethiopian eunuch. And that what I really love about this story is I was reading it, I was thinking, gosh, that, that there's a there's a real reminiscence here around um, the story of Jesus' post-resurrection little conversation with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. So um, both conversations happen on the road, a, a reinterpretation of the Old Testament around Christ. Both result or end, I guess, in a sacramental moment with Jesus breaking the bread um, and with Philip baptizing the eunuch. And both end with a mysterious disappearing act. Jesus disappears, Philip disappears. <laughs> um, so Luke, I think Luke's repeating motif is actually quite deliberate here and quite clear. Um, just as Stephen essentially is recapitulating the, the trial and execution of Jesus in chapter 7, Philip's missionary methods really recapitulate Jesus' spirit-led um, yeah, his spirit-led mission to preach to outsiders, to be with those people who were rejected by the, the, the Jewish system. So the Ethiopian eunuch was highly educated, no doubt, um, culturally refined. Um, he managed the royal accounts of the queen of Ethiopia. He was a pretty important person. Um, so yeah, he would have been important and influential, yet he was still technically an outsider in the sense that as a eunuch, you, eunuchs were not allowed to be part of the congregation of Israel. It went against the, the Mosaic law. So in terms of his status into, in the religious life of, of Israel, he was excluded. And yet he was coming up to Jerusalem to worship. So, so he has a desire to be um, part of the community of God, but at the same time he's excluded from the community of God. So in a sense, Philip's ministry... Um, is to the peasant class, if you like, of Samaria and to the regal class of Ethiopia. It's, it doesn't distinguish between classes. It doesn't distinguish between races. Um, it offers essentially the exact same meshe- uh, message. Philip's really consistent and really simple in his message. It's just, you're included. You're included in this thing. Um, you've, you thought you weren't, but you are. Um, and you don't actually have to do anything. It's already been done. You're included. Um, so I... Yeah, I could go on, but I, I began this presentation, I guess, with a with a suggestion that I'd I'd rather be a martyr than an evangelist, <laughs> and that may still be true. But I, I guess what I when I was thinking about it, it's like actually I'd, I'd rather be a martyr than a salesman, 
um, I don't want to be a salesman. I don't want to be on God's marketing team. It just, it's not for me. Uh, and that, that's actually what it is. Is this, is this what evangelism has become? Is it, is it salesmanship? And if that's the case, perhaps what we're reacting to is appropriate. Perhaps our feeling is appropriate. Um, so I think that's really the heart of this passage um, and perhaps the heart of the issue for us as a church to grasp. God, yeah, hasn't called us to sell Christianity. <laughs> um, it's much more about, you know, being, you know, to use the biblical language, we're, we're called to be heralds of good news. So what is a herald of good news? A herald is someone who just shares the news. He just passes on the news. And that's precisely what the gospel is. So the gospel, the the evangelion, the, the, the message is good news. And it's good news because it's, it's an event. It's a description of event, like news, like breaking news. This has just happened. The gospel is an event. It's not a philosophy. It's not a, it's not a marketing strategy. It's not a product. It's just telling about something that's happened. It's giving witness to the news rather than ideas. It's giving witness to an event of Jesus and a person of Jesus. And, yeah, so, <coughs> and I was thinking about it, Simon, Simon Magnus, the Simon the Sorcerer, he's actually, in a sense, he is the ancestor of this kind of manipulative form of evangelism. He centers the good news on himself. It's all about him. It's all about how he can persuade and woo and, and, and um, manipulate. He tries to use divine power as a tool to further his own little projects and to build his own little empire and that I think is actually where a lot of our the discourse of evangelism has landed um, Philip by contrast just shares the news just saying hey did you know um, the news he shares is the exact same news wherever he goes because it's describing a, an event um, so it doesn't matter who he talks to his, his methods are entirely diverse and entirely different they're responsive in the moment to who he's with whether it's with crowds of Samaritans whether it's one on one with a Ethiopian eunuch, his methods are very different, but his news is so consistent. So, yeah, the, the message is you're included in God's family. God's not asking you to work your way up to him. He's already, he's already drawn the boundary around you. You're already in. So um, I was thinking about that idea of evangelism is not um, inviting people into something, but it's much more letting them know that they are in something. Um, and I was thinking about the story, probably many of us are familiar with that story of the um, Japanese soldier Hiro Onoda, who who missed the news about the Second World War coming to an end. So he was loyal to his standing orders that he received from his um, his commanding officer. And it wasn't until 1974 that Onoda's former commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, um, who had since become a bookseller, uh, was called to go and tell Onoda to stand down, um, ordered him to stand down, and that was when he finally accepted the news. Okay, the war has come to an end. So um, he'd been living outside of the reality of what the rest of the world had been living for, you know, three decades, living in the bush as a as a holdout soldier. So evangelism, if you like, is news in the sense it's telling someone it's it's already happened, it's over. You know, like the 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 powers that were over you there. That war's done. Um, the, the uh, yeah, the powers have been defeated. Um, Jesus is Lord, whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not. Jesus is Lord, um, and you can live in freedom. 
that's that's so it's not and I, I hope it don't sound like I'm inventing a new sales pitch but that is what it is you're just telling them news um like his commanding officer told him and if that news gets through then the result should be in every case it should be joy it should be uh, like the eunuch he went on his way rejoicing or like the samaritans there was much joy and that's the right orientation to the gospel the the message just spilled out of him wherever he went and this i think is what yeah authentic evangelism looks like it's because there can be no evangelism without the evangel you know there can be no proclamation of the good news without the good news pope francis again put it pretty well in his exhortation where he says goodness always tends to spread every authentic experience of truth and goodness seeks by its very nature to grow within us and any person who has experienced a profound liberation becomes more sensitive to the needs of others as it expands goodness takes root and develops goodness and good news goodness and good news they always tend to spread but it first must take root and develop within us and this is really the heart of it um i don't think philip had a sense of this being a project that he was on um i don't think he felt like he had to work up the courage to go and do this thing it was deeply rooted in who he was this encounter with jesus and wherever he went it just spilled out it just it just happened um so yeah following that pattern laid down by jesus laid down by philip i i i guess yeah let's be open let's be open to what the spirit is is doing in us and i was thinking about this thing this is maybe a slightly random thought just almost finished by the way um but <laughs> just thinking you know in some ways i think what it is is actually we need to be evangelized again um it's actually not so much so when we're like trying to work up the courage and the fortitude to go out there and be evangelistic but it's actually that we need to be evangelized like in the, in a sense every sunday we are evangelized again like we're we re we reminded together as a people about the news you know about what jesus is doing so so i, I guess my my sense for us is that is that there's two things really there's on the one hand there's the challenge the challenge to um to be like philip to look for the outsider to look for the despised like to ask ourselves who are those people in our society who are the strangers who are the lonely who are the rejected who are the odd people <laughs> who are the awkward people because chances are um that's that's where god's heart is is with those people and at the same time um to encounter the good news ourselves um fresh and new So why don't we stand and um let's do that now